challenged by it. Well, when we come to uh, Peter and uh, his letters, it's good for us to remind ourselves that he's writing to Christians who are mainly Jewish Christians. It's quite important that we know that because some of the things he says will immediately uh, spring to the minds of these Jewish Christians. They'll understand what he's talking about. But they're not Jewish Christians in Israel or Judah. They're almost certainly, we think, in Turkey. And uh, I suspect there would be some people amongst them who weren't of Jewish descent because that's the way the church works, isn't it? But this seems to have been mostly the diaspora of the Jews who've left Judah and travelled into the Roman Empire. And they're mostly in Turkey. And they are followers of Jesus Christ. They're followers of Jesus Christ because God has called them into his kingdom. They are chosen by God. They're not Christians because they go to church. They're not Christians because they live in a Christian country, because they don't. Uh, they're not Christians because they follow certain dogmas or things like that, although they do follow certain doctrines and dogmas. But that's not what makes them Christians. What makes them Christians is that they have been sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. That's what Paul says, verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. And to some extent, some of us go, yeah, we sprinkled with his blood. I mean, I grew up in a Roman Catholic church, so I knew what it was to be sprinkled because the priest would walk along with his thing of holy water and shake it up and sometimes you'd get soaking wet if you just happened to be standing in the wrong place. But to the Jews, you see, it would remind them of the holiest place of all and once a year when the high priest only could go in and he would take the blood of a bull and he would go in and he would sprinkle it all around the altar and then he would come out and he would sprinkle the people. So the, the imagery was real to them. But of course, Peter is talking about a spiritual sprinkling. He's not talking about actually being sprinkled by the blood of Jesus Christ, but the reality of the power and efficacy of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross when he shed his blood. And he shed his blood so that everyone who believes in him might be forgiven because they would know that the Bible says without the sprinkling of blood there is no remission of sins. So it meant something very real to these people. And they've come to God in true sorrow for their sins. Perhaps some of them had been there on that first Pentecost. Because there were Jews from everywhere, weren't they? And they'd heard the preaching and they'd been told that Jesus is the Messiah and they've come to him in true sorrow for their sins and they've asked him in prayer to apply the punishment inflicted on Jesus to them. And they know that when you come to God truly like that, he hears you and he answers you. Now, because they've got this wonderful salvation, and it is a wonderful salvation, so much so that, Paul, uh, that Peter says in uh, verse 12, 
even angels long to look into these things. It's so amazing that even angels don't understand how amazing it is. Well, how would they? They've never been sinners. They've never known what it is to be lost. They've never known what it is to be facing the judgment and the justice of God and to be set free from that by the amazing love of Jesus Christ. And the angels just don't get it quite. But we can get it. Because God has revealed it to us. Now, having told these believers to live with real Christian hope in their hearts in the first part of the first chapter Peter wants to tell them that they have to live like people who have been set free they don't have to live any longer like people who are in captivity now I said this morning three words I'm not going to do a test you'll all remember the three words if you were here this morning I'm sure of that I will do it. No, I won't. <laughs> uh, but we got another three words this evening, so it helps us to fix our minds on the preachers, what the preachers say. Uh, basically, in this passage, Peter says, "You are to think, you are to act, and you are to understand." Okay, three things. If you are a believer, and he's writing to Christians, he says to them, "You are to think, you are to act." And you're to understand now um, we're going to do each of those separately some of it runs into each other and we'll see where it takes us so first of all how to think like a Christian now when did you last gird up the loins of your mind <laughs> you know we read it do we know what it means do you understand it they understood it you see and that is what the Hebrew, uh, the Greek actually says. Gird up the loins of your mind. Okay? Now, do you know the story, the parable, of the prodigal son? Now, you might remember in that parable that his father was looking out for him, wasn't he? And when he saw him a, a long distance away, he ran to him. He gathered up his robes and ran to him because it's not easy to re run in a long dress, is it? Well, somebody tell me, because I'm honest, I've never worn one, so, you know. But it's not, is it? I remember when I was in school, girls used to wear long dresses. That's what they wore. Everything was long. But girls were very good at getting them out of the way when they wanted to stand, do handstands against the walls and things like that. They had ways of doing it. But they, they gathered them up. And that is the picture. Get yourself ready to go. Modern parlance, you young people up there, get your minds in gear, okay? Think. Think. That's what Peter's saying. Think. Don't just think that as a Christian you don't have to think. You do have to think. And, and you have to think in a certain way. They, they are to be alert. Now, what does it say in your version? Uh, be sober and rest your hope. Okay? In the NIV, be alert and fully sober. And both of those words are there. Now, go back all the way to the Old Testament, to Exodus. People of Israel, they're all in Egypt. 
It's the night of the Passover. The Passover, for those who don't know, was an amazing event in which God said, having kept on telling the Pharaoh to let his people go, and the Pharaoh refused and refused and refused, he brought the most severe judgment on them, and he said to his people, the only way you can avoid this judgment is to put the blood of a special lamb over your doorpost, uh, over your lintel and on the doorposts, and the angel of death when he comes will pass over you. But at the same time, he told them you ought to have a particular sort of meal. And he gave them all the instructions about the meal. And then he said, in chapter 12, verse 11 of Exodus, if you want to turn it up, be ready to move with your cloak tucked in your belt. Be ready to move. Because Christianity is not standing still, it's moving. We're heading somewhere. We're not waiting in one place until God comes to us. We're moving towards where He is. And our lives are going to change. I remember, one of, I'm sure you've all experienced this, there are some things you hear in sermons that never leave you, aren't they? Some preachers have just got it, haven't they? And there's a great preacher called Sinclair Ferguson, some of you may know him. And I remember him speaking from Romans and saying from Romans chapter 8, famous verses, that we're being conformed to the image of Christ. He said, and it makes me think, when I get to heaven, it won't be Peter that's waiting to receive me. He says, it'll be Jesus who's waiting to receive me. And he will take me to his father. And he will say, Father, this is John. And he says, the father will say, my, you look so like your big brother. Because that's what God is doing with us. He's making us more like Jesus. And we understand that, don't we? If I walk into a room and my brother walks into a room, everybody knows we're brothers. There's no doubt about it because we look so much alike. I have to say our accents are not the same anymore because he's still in Cardiff <laughs> and I haven't been in Cardiff for 40 years. But you understand. So we've got this picture of getting ready to move. And if we're going to move, we have to think about what we're doing. And to be thinking, we have to be alert. You have to be alert to what's around you. Not just what's immediately in front of you, but what the world around you is thinking. Because you will have people coming into your classrooms, onto your television screens, onto your radios, and they will say the most absurd things and will expect you to just accept what they're saying. And you young people are going to face this much more than I did when I was your age. And you have to be alert because it's easy to be taken in by it. And that's why so many people in our country are taken in by it. Because they're not thinking about the reality of the situation. We need to remind ourselves that the world, that is the unbelieving world, has a master, a controlling power, Satan. And he is at work amongst the people who don't believe. And he's blinding the minds of those that don't believe. That's what the Bible says. That's a reality. 
If you don't think, you could end up with a blinded mind. And if you're not alert, you can easily fall into accepting and even living by the beliefs of the world. One example, I suppose, is the declining marriage between one man and one woman. There was an article on the uh, Coalition for Marriage website this week about a new book called The Two-Parent Privilege. It's uh, a top US economist, not a Christian, a woman named Melissa Kearney. Don't know her. But for more than 10 years, she's been researching poverty and social equality. And she's come to the conclusion from all the data that when two people marry and stay together, their children do much better and their assets grow and their wealth is better and there's loads of things that spin off from that. When I read that I thought, you only just found that out? Christians know that, don't they? Christians know it because we've grown up in churches and we've seen the way that Christian families are blessed by God, by their faithfulness. And these are advantages because they're doing what God says. And this economist has been vilified for publishing this book because people don't like the fact that the facts say that what Christians have been saying for years is true. It is better to be married. And God blesses that. But the world we live in will want to convince you you don't need to do that. You don't need to. Just do, do what everybody else does. Don't take it seriously. And it's a disaster. Young people, I'm going to say to you, it's a disaster. Don't do it. Listen to the word of God and do what that says. And then he says, be self-controlled. Don't just follow the crowd. Think for yourself. It's easy to follow the crowd. Most of us here who are much older know how easy it is to follow the crowd because we've done it. Been there, done that, know what a mistake it is and how wrong we can be. So, Peter says, be self controlled. Fully sober is the word the Bible uses. You understand that when you're not fully sober, hopefully not many of you have experienced that. I have. When you're not fully sober, you can do stupid things. You don't really get a full grasp of what's going on around you. What's more, you can say utterly stupid things. And what Peter is saying to these people is be self-controlled. Don't get into that position. Say no. The attitude of the world is if it feels good, do it. Worry about the consequences later. The attitude of the Christian is if it doesn't honour God, don't do it. And God will take care of the consequences. So, 
Paul says, do this. Now Peter says, do these things. But you notice he says, do it. Do them with the future in mind. He says, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. He says, what do you want to, if, if I could put words in Peter's mouth, what do you want to be bothered with all the things they're telling you you can have now? Think about what you're going to get one day. Think about what God is going to give to you one day when Jesus Christ comes, when you're in his presence. Think then of what that's going to be like. You'll be in the presence of God. You'll never have another sinful thought. There'll be no possibility of a sinful word coming out of your lips. You will never feel even slightly unsatisfied. You'll never feel envious about anybody else. Nothing like that. Everything will be joy and gladness. And probably you'll have a good job too in heaven because I don't think we're going to sit on clouds. You'll have something to do and you'll enjoy it. It'll be wonderful because that's what you, you're going to get. So set your hope on that. Don't worry too much about this world and what it'll give you. In Romans, Paul talks about the sufferings of this present age not being not worthy, not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. Not worth comparing. He says, don't even think about it. It uses an, an accounting term. He says, you add up on one side of the ledger your sufferings. And of course, for some people, the pile is higher than for others. We don't all suffer the same. But there's the sufferings. And it's almost as if he says, but, but when you start thinking of the glory, wow, the column goes up and up and up and up. It's not even worth comparing. It's so amazing. So, what should you do? Well, you should think of Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, Think about such things. Think about good things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice and the God of peace will be with you. So think. Think. Then secondly, how to act like a Christian. Act. Verses 14 to 17. Obedience. Obedience. That's one of the challenges that we face as obedient children. As obedient children. <coughs> what he's saying is something really powerful. He's saying we are to desire the same holiness for our lives that is the essence of God. It's almost incredible, isn't it? But that's what he's saying. Be holy, because I'm holy. So desire that. Now, when parents tell their children to do things, they expect to be obeyed. 
And when they're not obeyed, they get upset about it. If God is our Father, isn't he entitled to expect us to obey him? Is that unreasonable? If he's adopted us into his family, he's given up so much for us who have no family to bring us into his own family. How amazing is that? And he wants us to obey him. This is one part of the Christian life. It's one of the things that we do. We obey God. And it's interesting, isn't it? Peter starts off in a verse I read just now. To be obedient to Jesus Christ. And then in verse 22, he says it again. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth, obey something else, he goes on to say, which we'll touch on later. Obedience is importance. Importance. How do you know what to obey? Well, you better pick up your Bibles and read it. Because this is where we know what to obey. This is God's handbook. And this is where you learn how to obey Him. But then, there's the avoidance of evil. Live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear, he said. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Avoid evil. Be a real non-conformist. Now, us Baptists, <coughs> we're very proud of our non-conformism. Perhaps sometimes we're too proud of it. We are non-conformist with the national church. That's where the expression non-conformist comes from. But <coughs> we are to be non-conformist with this world, with the way this world acts. We are not to act like it. We're to be different. We don't follow the rest. We take a stand on what is right. So this is an advance on not just on just being alert and self-controlled now we have to take a stand we have to avoid evil and and you can't do that sometimes without explaining to people why you, you won't do what they're going to do that's hard but you have to be ready to do it no I won't do that and then We've got to be attached to our Father. Since you call on a Father who judges each person's work impartially. What a blessing to have a Father. and It must be a fantastic blessing to have a Christian Father, I, I think and I hope. I never had one, but I was blessed with my Father. My father was, in my eyes, a great man. He was a, a good man. <coughs> he was also an extremely tough man. He was a Royal Marine for 15 years, all through the Second World War. And uh, was still in the Royal Marines when I was born. And he didn't cross my dad. Not just the children, there were six of us. <laughs> 
One minute, I don't remember my father ever lifting a hand against any one of us. All my mother, my mother used to do all the disciplining and all she had to say was, I'll tell your father. <laughs> that generally worked pretty well. And sometimes when you were out and kids were giving you a tough time, you would say, I'll tell my father, and they knew Jackie. And that would usually work. You see, when you're a Christian, you have a father. I hope if you've got fathers, and I don't take it for granted that everyone has, but if you have got a father, that you love him, that you value him, that you respect him, that you do what he wants you to do. And if you're a Christian, you have a father. Great picture of this in the Old Testament. Three young men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the king says, well, do what I tell you or I'll throw you in the furnace. And they say, well, throw us in the furnace. Because we're not going to disobey our father. We're not going to do that. You can do what you like because we're fully persuaded that our father can save us. And even if he doesn't, we're still not going to do what you tell us to do. We're going to do what he tells us to do. I have a father. And you can say that to people, can't you? I have a father. We're adopted as sons. I will say to the ladies, don't be upset about that, please. Because again, you have to understand it culturally. When he said you're adopted as sons, it meant that you're adopted as if you were the firstborn son and you got the big portion. That's the point. And ladies, you get as big a portion as men. You're adopted in to get your share of all the glory of God. And you should be so attached to your father that you want to be where he is. So you live like a foreigner here because this is not home. Yeah, when I first came to England, boy, did I live like a foreigner. I'll tell you, it's terrible. It's like I'd gone overseas. I felt like a missionary. I mean, attended them. Weird. I wanted to be back home. My brothers and sisters were... Do you know, I've got five brothers and sisters who've never lived more than a mile from each other all their lives. And here am I, down here with you lot. <laughs> I think I'm adopted now. But you know what I mean, don't you? you? You must have experienced at times when you're away from home that you really would like to be home. You really want to be home. And as Christians, we should have a bit of that about us. I want to be with my father. This is not where I'm supposed to be. Ultimately, I'm supposed to be with him. And that's what we live like. Well, I'm waffling a bit, aren't I? Sorry. How to understand like a Christian. So, think, act, understand. That's the rest of our passage, verses 18 to 25. What do you understand? Well, first of all, you understand who saves you. You understand that you don't save yourself. How are you saved? You know. You know. It wasn't with perishable things like silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. 
But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, so that your faith and hope are in God. Who saves you? It's God the Father who saves you. Too many of us have the image of God the Father as a cruel father who just wants to punish everybody. It's not true. It was the Father who said to the Son, will you go and save the Son? He spared not his own Son, but gave him up freely for us all. He did it. And he did it by redemption. Now again, you see, there's so much of the Old Testament in these words we've just read. Of course, they lived in a time where most people in the world worshipped gods of gold and silver or brass, things like that. If you read the prophecy of Isaiah between chapters 43 and 47, you'll find Isaiah doing this absolutely brilliant job of ridiculing idols and, and people who make idols. It just shows how ridiculous it is. But the reality was, even in the time of Peter, in the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, the vast majority of the world were worshipping idols. And it was a futile thing. It was an empty way of life handed down by the ancestors. Because what had happened to the Jews? The Jews had fallen into the same idolatry. And Peter's saying, do you think idols can save you? Of course they can't. Idols are idols. They're pieces of wood or stone or metal or whatever they are. They can't save you. And you're not saved by those things. You're not saved by being in church. You're not saved by idolizing your pastor. You're not saved by coming to communion. You're only saved when you appropriate by grace what Jesus did on the cross because what he did was something they understood he redeemed slaves now that they understood you see if you were a slave and the Roman Empire had more slaves than I think any empire in the history of the world I think could be wrong about that but I think so you were a non-person. You didn't exist. You were uh, an object. You could be bought and sold. I caught. I, ne I never did see the whole film, fourteen years as a slave, but I saw a bit of it once, and and that came out very clearly. These human beings just being standing there and being sold, sold. You know, like an auction. And once you were in that position, you belonged to someone else. And the only way you could get out of that was to be redeemed. 
That was the word they used. When I was a boy, they still used it for the pawn shops. You could put something in a pawn shop and they would give you a certain amount of money for it and they would give you a ticket. But if you got to this position where you could buy it back, it would cost you more to buy it back, but you could buy it back as long as you had the ticket. You could redeem it. That's what they used to say. You are not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your vain traditions received from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish and spot. Oh, the, what, a lamb without blemish and spot? They recognised that as well, didn't they? Back to the Passover again. You had to have a lamb without blemish or spot to redeem you, to keep you safe. So they were understanding this. Do you understand who saves you and how you're saved? You're only saved by committing yourself totally to Jesus Christ. Completely. Unreserved. Now, here's a little example I might have told you before, but I, it's the best example of God. So, if I say it again and again and again, that's not, no bad thing. Paul said to the, the Philippians, he said to them, I, I've got nothing new to say to you. And that's for your good. But my son Daniel, and he's bigger than me now, but he was a little boy once. When, when we were in Tenterden, at the bottom of our street, we lived in a cul-de-sac, at the bottom of our street, there was a little pathway through into playing fields. And it was a woods. And right at the bottom of the street was a big tree. One day, Daniel went up the tree then discovered he couldn't get down. He was a long way up the tree. Now I was around somewhere, but for some reason they couldn't find me at the immediate moment. I, I honestly, I hadn't hidden away, honest. <laughs> but but uh, my neighbour across the road, Roy, was a good friend, Daniel knew him well. Someone went and got Roy, and Roy went down and he stood under the tree and he said, come on Dan, I'll get you, go on, come on. Come on Daniel, you know me. Then they found me and I went down there and Roy said, hey, you won't come. And I said to the bottom tree, he said, come on, Dan. And he just jumped. It was great from I didn't expect him to, I thought he'd moved down the tree a bit. <laughs> and he just jumped. But you see, I'm his father. He trusts me completely. It doesn't cross his mind to doubt whether I'll catch him. Of course I'll catch him. I'm his father, aren't I? And you see, in a sense, that's how we come to Christ. We just throw ourselves into his arms. Trust him completely. He's not going to drop us. He's not going to fail us. He loves us. That's, that's who saves us. Why does he save you? Well, he saves us. And there are three things he mentions. Firstly, in verse 21, to trust his Father. Your faith and hope are in God. Trust his Father. Secondly, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, you've got to do something else. So that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable, through the living, enduring word of God. Do you understand 
that you need to be in the church. You need to be amongst God's people. You need to be one with them. And you need to love them deeply from the heart because you're all saved the same way. For eternity. Don't know how that strikes you. You look around this room and if you're a Christian and you know the other Christians, you're going to be with them for eternity. Do you love them deeply now? Do you love them with all your heart? Do you love them that you want to be with them? Do you want to worship God with them? Because one day you'll be worshipping God with them forever. How amazing is that? And then, lastly, to joyfully remember your future hope. You're looking to the future. And where do you find details of your future? In the living and enduring Word of God. And he gives this Old Testament picture, like grass. Well, if you live in the south of England at the moment, you probably understand that, don't you? Down on Romney Marsh, we haven't had any rain for three months to speak of. Mind you, my grass keeps growing. But looking all around, in the fields and things like that, things have been pretty rough and dry. Because grass dies if it gets no rain. But we're not like that. Because the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. The everlasting word of God. God's word will never fail. will never be God. Every promise he's made, he will keep. Because his word is living and enduring. And that means that if you're a Christian, you're living and enduring. You will be forever with the Lord. Sing that, don't we? Sometimes, not very often. Forever with the Lord. Amen. So let it be. Life from the dead is in that word. It's immortality. Dragged out of this body. Absent from him we roam. But nightly pitch our moving tent. A day's march near home. We're back where we started, aren't we? We're on a journey. We're moving forward. We're not standing still. Is this how you're living as a Christian? Is this what you desire to honour your Father in Heaven? Well, I pray that it may be so.